0: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today's a little bit different. Today, it's not a specific topic in game design. Today, is more of a little fireside chat, a little, little conversation with me and Mr. Corey Kineska, one of the greatest designers, in my opinion, on the planet. Corey, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks. That's very flattering.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, you've designed just some of the best games of all time. So many games of yours are in the top 100, top 200 on, on BGG uh, some, some of my favorite games you've designed is I'm just really excited to just sit and chat and get your uh, ideas, your thoughts, your opinions, you know, how your design process works, You know what uh, what you've been through, what you've seen, how you've overcome different challenges and whatnot. But, I mean, just some of the games that, that are listed in your profile. You've got Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, Battlestar Galactica, Descent, Eldritch Horror, Mansions of Madness, Star Wars Rebellion, Star Wars Imperial Assault, Star Wars Outer Rim, Space Hulk. Death Angel, Starcraft, Gears of War, Discover, lands on, I mean, just, it goes on and on and on. And you've designed so many amazing games. And I'm just pumped to, to get a little behind the scenes look at your process, how in the world you come up with these ideas, how do you overcome you know challenges and whatnot. But before we get into all of that, who are you? How'd you get into game design, all that kind of thing?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, I've been playing games as long as I can remember. And not just that I've also just as a hobby been designing them. I mean, even as a kid, like me and my brothers, we would make up our own little games, we'd make up our own little sports, just kind of always be dabbling in that sort of thing. Um, And as I grew older, like in, um, I would say, even in high school, like me and my friends, we had like a a made up CCG that we made that would play at lunch. that we were continually like evolving and playing. And so it's always just kind of been a part of my life just as like what I did to um, entertain myself. Some people read, some people watch movies. I do those things, but I also kind of feel like designing games in my spare time. Um, And so as I got older and I was um, kind of graduating college, I was hanging out with my friends and, designing some games on the side that we would just play when we would get together. And um, as luck would have it, I came across a posting on fantasy flight games website that they were looking for game designers. Um, And I had at the time just picked up twilight Imperium third edition and like it had become my obsession. (laughs) And so when I saw this posting on their website, I'm like, whoa, that's cool. I wonder if I could turn this hobby into a job. And so I um, wrote up a resume and sent it to FFG, and I sent along with it a a fan-made expansion for Twilight Imperium that me and one of my friends were working on. And, I mean, this could have been a disaster. Like, you're sending a fan-made game design idea to Uh, Little did I know at the time, the um, founder of the company who had created the game Twilight Imperium. And so it it was going to receive some critiques one way or another, right? Um, And apparently it it must have um, impressed him in some way because they called me and flew me out there for an interview. And this was in, I want to say 2008, is that right? 2006, somewhere around there. Um, And... Yeah, I guess the interview went well because they called me back and told me I got the job. So I've been doing it ever since.
0: Yeah, I'd say it went pretty well. Uh, I think it has gone also well for them. (laughs) As as many games as you've been able to work on and and have your hand in. You've made them a few dollars uh, over the last... Several years, and so tell me about working for FFG because uh, I know a lot of people, especially you know, a lot of people listen to this. They they think, gosh, I want to be in the industry. I want to work full time as a designer. You know, so they're looking at a guy like you and saying, okay, I want to I want to travel that path. So tell me a little bit more what it's like to work for a major publisher, a major company, uh, and you don't have to go into the nitty gritty details sure. and all that kind of thing, but just kind of give me the overall uh, overview of what it's like.
1: Yeah, I mean, it evolved a lot over the years. When I was hired at FFG um there were somewhere in the realm of 20 employees and there were four other people that were hired the same day that i was and so they had just added like a fifth of their workforce to the um to the company so it was kind of a big deal um and there were um a handful of other designers and developers there there was kevin wilson who's great um john Goodenough worked there and so i was i was game designer number three that was kind of joining the team. Now, I say game designer number three, but there was also, of course, Christian, the the founder of the company, who like, he's the guy who designed Twilight Imperium and designed a fair number of their games, especially early on. Um, And he was kind of the visionary behind um, a a fair number of the projects, but it was, um, I mean, I was just kind of like thrown into the deep end, like, hey, we're working on this world of Warcraft game and we're nearing the end of development and we need somebody to design some new bosses for it. And so that was kind of the first job that I had as a professional game designer was designing bosses for a game that was mostly, um, mostly finished in its design. It just needed more content. And so I kind of started out by just designing some content. And then later on I I think my second project was, okay, now we've got this game, um, Warrior Knights. No, that wasn't my second one. I think my second was probably Britannia. And Britannia was more of, here's this popular game, this older game that we want to bring back. And I was doing zero game design on that one. My job was to just um, kind of help produce this game and make it um more accessible and so a lot of what i did there was like working with the rules and getting all the parts to come together helping like get the art and the, and the graphics and that sort of stuff so i mean throughout my tenure at ffg i kind of saw all the different parts of what goes into making a game and when you're a small company you wear a lot of hats i mean we didn't have an art um, department at the time we had a graphic design team and they did the graphics but um we didn't have a sculpting team and so like a lot of these things was just kind of like all right this is on the designer to do um, and so it's a lot of uh, i mean a lot of learning by doing which i think is a lot of what um game designers starting out today have, have to do as well
0: yeah, for sure. And it changed so much in really a short amount of time, you know, roughly 10 years or so to be drastically different. So tell me kind of more about how how things are now, like when they assign a game, like a game idea comes in, like, how does that begin? You know, does the founder say, Hey, uh, we just got the license to this new IP. And so we're gonna make a game about it. Or does somebody from the inside kind of come up with ideas and pitch different things or, it's, you know, some kind of, Amalgamation of both those things. Like, how does it work, especially in the early stages of you know, kind of developing an idea that's gonna be a game?
1: Sure, like I'm sure it varies from company to company, but at FFG, I mean, both of those things you mentioned happened. Um, there were situations where, hey, we just got this IP for Battlestar Galactica, and we want to make a game for it, and so then my boss would approach me and say, "Hey, Corey, do you want to work on this? Let's discuss what this game could be." And that would start with like a brainstorming meeting of us just like drawing out our wild ideas of like what types of um, gameplay moments do you want this to capture? What's the focus of it? Is the game about being individual characters or is it a more epic game where we're controlling fleets of ships? Like anytime that you're um, starting design on a game, you've got to decide what the scope of it is, right? You've got to decide like who who are you as the player and what are you trying to do? And so um, regardless of where the idea for the game came from, the um, first step in the process was always to decide those two things. Um, And we would call that a vision meeting, um, which was just us sitting down and discussing and agreeing on the basic parameters. And um, after we had decided on those things, we, we would move on to like, all right, all right, this sounds like a good idea for a game. Now, Corey run off and make a playable prototype and, uh, and see how, see if it's any fun. So that's, that's, (laughs) that's where it would go.
0: Gotcha. Now tell me about kind of how things are are structured there. Like, do they have like a lead designer that then gets assigned, you know, kind of sub designers to kind of help out with the project, especially, if I guess bigger games, you need more people, things like that. Tell me kind of how the hierarchy works. Cause I feel like this is something a lot of people are curious about. Most, most people listen to the show are designing as a hobby right? And it's just them and maybe their cat that are designing the game. And they're trying to do everything and figure it all out. But like, tell me kind of how things work at a, a more, you know bigger company like FFG.
1: Um, I, I mean, like I said, it, it changed over the years. Um, when I started there, um, Christian, the, the owner of the company was basically the one who had the final say, who's also a game designer himself. And so um, he would play every game and he would provide his critiques and he would like draw a line in the sand, and say, no, we can't do this, or yes, we can do that. And so he was he was the um the guiding light as it would be. Um and later that role changed, it evolved. Um for a fair number of years I was the the lead game designer there at FFG. And so it became my job to not only design my own games, but to spend half my time um Kind of guiding the other teams, so I would play every game that every other team was working on, whether it was a miniatures game or a card game or board game, and I would provide critiques and um, suggestions, and occasionally have to blow something up if I thought it wasn't good enough. Um, and, and and so that was that was like I said, half of my job while I was there at the end. And um, now that position is. Um, being led by Nate French, who's a brilliant designer, who's done um, a lot of stuff for FFG. He's done um, one of the most popular ones is Lord of the Rings, um, the LCG. He's also worked on Marvel. He's, he's done a lot of card games specifically, but very bright guy, and he's uh, he's kind of that in that role now, helping the um, the other designers kind of. Um, tune up their designs and, and flesh them out. But, um, but on a day-to-day basis for the designers, it's, it's the team size can vary depending upon the size and scope of the project. It can sometimes be a single person designing a game and then like showing it to the lead game designer, or it could be a team of designers or a designer and a developer or designers and producers. So, I mean, it, There's no one size fits all solution for, um, what a team looks like on a a project at a company like that.
0: Gotcha. And and that makes a lot of sense, you know, depending on, is this a small card game or is this a hundred dollar tons of miniatures, you know, three hour Epic experience. So it makes a lot of sense. Now, what was the first game that you really had a hand in that you could say, okay, this is, this is a game that's mine. I'm not just making bosses. I'm not just making content. What was the first one?
1: that I that I was the only designer on or was... Um, Either that
0: or just like one of the, you know, the first games you really felt like I have a at least a giant part in the game design of this particular game.
1: Sure. I would probably say that was the new edition of Warrior Knights that we did. And um, Warrior Knights was another um, game from, I think it was the 80s. Um, it was a Games Workshop game, I believe. And we were trying to reimagine it for um, the modern age. (laughs) I say modern, but this is probably 12 years ago. Um, (laughs) And so my job was to kind of look at this older game and, like, remove as much of it that I thought we needed to remove and um, inject new life into it. And so, like, I designed, like, basically new systems for for a lot of it while keeping the heart of the game so i came up with like a new combat system i came up with like this new action system and that was really the first time when i felt like i was able to prove to my boss that i could not just design content but that i could design systems and so um like the main action system in that game is that everybody has a handful of different actions that they can do and they're represented on these cards and each round, you choose which actions you want to do and you put the cards face down into a pile and then the pile gets shuffled up and then the cards get drawn out one at a time and everybody gets to do whatever the action is on the card. Um, but cards also had secondary effects where after you would resolve the action, it would be placed in one of the tracks that could like trigger a lot of the um, cleanup and status, um, status phases that you usually need in the game. So it was it was kind of a way to deconstruct like a really rigid um, round structure where a lot of times it's like all right here's the start of the turn you've got like the refresh phase and then you've got the activation phase and you get this phase and that phase well we just kind of like removed all those things and made them come out organically Um, and I I feel like that was the first time when I was really able to um, like I said get in there and try to design something that was new even though like at least 50 percent of it was an existing game that i was um fiddling with
0: yeah for sure and and warrior knights this is a game i came into contact with early on in my kind of gaming experience this is several years ago and i was so impressed by all the different systems that come together to work in this really cool way I love the the abstract nature of some of it like you know you send ships off and do different things it's kind of like away from the board it's just little tokens moving on a map but then you also had like you know dudes on the map actively engaged in battle so it's a really cool mixture of abstract and not so abstract and I I think it was just a really cool uh, design that you, you came up with now fast forward a little bit and you kind of get to do something similar working on twilight imperium fourth edition where you're taking a game that has been around but now this one's a little more beloved than warrior knights this one's got a little bit more of a built-in audience and so tell me about you know working on that tell me some of the similarities maybe some things you learned from working on you know older games already and then doing it on a new version of a a, such a beloved game it's like i don't want to screw this up you know i can imagine a little bit of pressure on that one so tell me about
1: it yeah. And I mean, to be fair with Warrior Knights, like I did design those systems, but like things like the way that armies worked in that game, the way that expeditions work, these were all things that were designed by other people. And so I definitely can't um, claim credit for like how fun that game is. I can I could say that it was the first time I was able to flex my um, creative design chops, but I don't want to belittle the the work that all the other designers did Um But I mean, to relate that to Twilight Imperium, it was um, the the fourth edition was a very tricky project that was kind of simmering in the background for years. Now, like I said, the third edition was one of the main reasons why I got a job at FFG and I was fortunate enough to um, be the designer of the expansions for Twilight Imperium third edition. And so, like some of the ideas that I had come up with even before I worked at Fantasy Flight Games ended up making their way into an expansion, which was, which was really cool. And like I was very like um, starstruck by the idea that I would actually get to make content for a game that I loved so much as a fan. Um, now, did
0: they actually take on the the expansion you sent in with your resume? Did they actually take that on, and it become an expansion later, or something totally different?
1: So. um So, Christian wanted to do an expansion. He had some ideas floating around in his head. And I had some ideas too from like the fan made stuff that I had made. And so um, we collaborated together on that. And I um, ended up taking like his ideas. I took my ideas. We came up with new ideas. And all of those kind of like came together to create um, the Twilight Imperium third edition expansions. Some of it was things that we resurrected from second edition that had never made it into third edition. So it was it was just this hodgepodge of like all the best ideas that we had been sitting on for years and we kind of brought them together into, into an expansion.
0: Awesome. And then, so uh, let's go fourth edition.
1: So the fourth edition was like, okay, now I've had my hand in working on a third edition or I guess two third edition expansions. And now we've got... Um, a huge fan base for twilight imperium and we're looking back we're like okay people have been playing this game for 10 years now what do they want out of a fourth edition what do we want out of a fourth edition what can we even do like to improve upon the previous one and uh so we brought in um dane Beltremi, who's a um developer or designer at ffg who honestly has played more twilight imperium third edition games than i have and probably more than a lot of people in the world. He's just crazy. Um, Knew the ins and outs of that game and he had that perspective of like of what it's like as a gamer where I've just been in that world so long as like designing and tinkering with stuff that it was good to have like the different perspectives of what he liked as a fan, what I liked as a designer and what we thought the audience wanted. And so at the same time, we're working with Christian, who's the designer of First Edition. He's the one who created the universe. And so there were lots of just um, meetings and brainstorming sessions of like, well, let's let's pick and choose like what we think the most important things are. Let's play a game of Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition with no expansion content in it and see how we feel about it. Let's play a game of Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition with our favorite expansion content in it and see what we feel about that. And so um, some of it was just kind of picking and choosing our favorite aspects of 3rd Edition that exist. And some of it was just us kind of turning a critical eye towards the game and saying, well, you know what? If we had to be perfectly honest, we're not 100% happy with the way that the trade system works. Like, it's fine. It's okay. But if we were to kind of remove that system from the game and design something else in its place, how would we do that? Um, And so we just kind of went through the game system by system and had those discussions. And then Dane was creating prototypes. He was creating content for it. So a lot of my involvement in fourth edition was very much kind of directing the vision of it, knowing having worked with Christian for so long, having worked with Chris for over a decade and kind of knowing his sensibilities, knowing not only what he loved about game design, but what he loved about the Twilight Imperium universe. And so I was kind of in between Christian, the creator of the game and Dane, the designer developer of fourth edition and kind of steering both of them and, um, trying to make sure that this game wasn't um it it could somehow appeal to fans of third edition but also not be um not have so much in it that it would turn away new fans and i think that miraculously we found that happy medium Um, and it just took a lot of hard work and a lot of playtesting
0: yeah for sure now as far as playtesting in you know third edition especially it's like all right today we're going to play twilight imperium and I, when i mean today i mean today you know i can see how that would be an interesting uh challenge every day you come to work it's like, all right guys we're gonna do this and this is gonna be our whole work day and uh all but yeah day. you definitely yeah you definitely pulled it off with fourth edition fourth edition it's 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 a really great great game now let's well, we, kind of switch gears a little
1: i was just gonna say with the um with 3rd Edition, when I was working on the expansions, we had a, uh, a group of local players that used to come into the Fantasy Flight Game Center, and they would they would play Twilight Imperium every week. It was like every Wednesday night, they would play Twilight Imperium. And so I just kind of got to know these guys and had them sign some NDAs. And I said, hey, guys, we're working on an expansion. What do you think of me hijacking hijacking your group for the next six months and us playing this stuff? and." that's how we got a lot of um, a lot of our early testing for that game done, or that expansion done.
0: Yeah, that's a great great way to do it. Now let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the first game that you really felt like was yours, right? It wasn't based on something else, maybe based on an IP, you know, that, that's fine, but like something that's, you know, uniquely a Corey Koneska game. You had the kind of the 100%, you know, design uh, of it. Tell me about that game.
1: Oh boy, I think... So this might not technically be the first game that I had 100% control over the design like from scratch, but the one that immediately comes to mind would be Battlestar Galactica, the board game.
0: Well, that's a pretty good one to come to mind, sir. So yeah, let's, let's dive into that one. Tell me about the beginning stages, especially. So you had an idea about what you're going for, but walk me through the design process, especially early on.
1: Sure. So like I mentioned earlier, that one very much started as a discussion of, hey, this is an IP we have. What kind of game can we make out of this? And so the first um, memory that I have of it was me and Christian sitting on an airplane. We were flying to a business meeting for something unrelated to this. And we had two or three hours of uninterrupted time when we were just sitting on the plane and we are just talking about Battlestar Galactica and what was cool about it and what we would want out of a game and so he was the one who who pitched the idea of it being like a a a a game where you didn't know who you could trust where there's potentially someone who's working against you to represent kind of the Cylon aspect of it and we talked about the idea that like yes everybody plays a different character this is there's, there's so many likable and unlikable characters in that show that people just want to kind of role play. Um, And so we just kind of spitballed some ideas about like what sort of things you might be able to do probably jotted some notes down on a, on a napkin and drew like some pictures of stuff. Um, And I just kind of took that whole discussion and wrote it up into like a pitch of what this game could potentially be. Um, and like it was just such a such an inspiration the ip that i felt like there was almost a fully formed idea after this one discussion in my head about what what this could be and so as soon as i got back in the office and i had wrapped up work on whatever project i I had going at the time i just threw together a prototype as fast as i can and that's That's something that I always try with my process. I always try to, um, once I have an idea for a game and I've kind of jotted some stuff down so I don't forget it, it's like go from that step to something playable in as short a period of time as you can. Usually in like under a week, I can do it. Sometimes I can do it in a day. It depends upon the size of the game. Um, And then I had something playable and I sat down and we tried it and it was clunky there were parts of it that didn't work, but it was pretty apparent from even the first play that like we had something, we had, we'd captured something unique. Um, And I think what that, that heart that we found was the the social dynamic of the game. And it was very unlike anything else I had worked on previously Um, because I mean that the main emotion in that game is paranoia. And so, um, once we had discovered like that, that was the heart of the game. Then it was my job to like, all right, reinforce every mechanic that um, contributes to that to that heart of the game, and remove every mechanic that does not and isn't crucial to the um, to the underlying game mechanics. And so, it's a lot of kind of. <laughs> adding to certain parts of the game design and um, and reducing because uh, one thing, especially as I as I get older in my years of designing games, I, I don't want my games to be so overwhelming that people are just bombarded with a, a hodgepodge of different mechanics and different things that they have to remember, I want them to be able to get to the fun as fast as possible.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And especially if you if you find something that is super fun about a game, then how in the world do you keep, you know, pointing back to it over and over again and cutting away all the other stuff? It actually my brain always goes back to sports and football. We had a <laughs> back when I was playing JV ball in high school, we we were playing this game and they, they could not stop the run. This other team, they could not do it. And so we ran the ball over and over and over again. We'd run option left, we'd run option right, option left, option right, all the way down the field score and didn't do it again. And the quarterback was getting so frustrated because he wanted to throw the ball. He's like, coach, can I, can I throw the ball? Can I throw a slant? Can I do anything? And, uh, and the coach is like, no, man, they, they can't stop it. So we're just going to keep doing it. And the quarterback said, coach, they, they know what play we're going to run. And the coach said, yeah, but they don't know if we're going left or right. And, was like, <laughs> and so we just kept on doing it. And so I think with Battlestar Galactic, like you're saying, everything points towards that feeling of, I think you're a traitor and, Oh, you know, and, and just over and over and over again, that feeling of gosh, I don't think you're on my team, even if they are, you don't, you don't think they are necessarily. And so it's so cool how that game, you know, plays into that, just a paranoid uh, atmosphere, that experience. But tell me a little more about your prototyping process. So you're able to, you know, prototype a game pretty early. What does that look like? Is it just super simple, like note cards and things like that at first or, or kind of tell me about your process now?
1: Sure. So um, I actually went to school for graphic design and so Um, I'm luckily able to use those skills in my day-to-day life. Um, I can't make anything as pretty as like a published game can be, but um, I always have an eye towards like the user interface and kind of what cards look like, where the information is. And so even in my early prototypes, um, I've got cards laid out in a format where it's like, here's where I want the information. Um, Here's what I want people looking at. My, My game boards are usually just like, a white sheet of paper with a bunch of boxes on it and any text that we need. And so I'm like, all right, we're going to have the Battlestar Galactica. It's going to be in the center of the board. So I'll just like put a big circle there, or I'll find a picture from the internet or something and slap it down. And then I'll put some boxes that are the spaces you can move on. So, I mean, it's not pretty, but it's got all the functional parts there. It's got the numbers, it's got the text, it's got the colors kind of in the, positions in ways that I want them to be. And then as we start playing with that, I can move stuff around and say, ah, oh, everyone's kind of not able to find this icon on the card. Maybe we should make it bigger or move it. And so those sorts of things I've got my eye on very early in a prototype.
0: Yeah, very cool. And so tell me about how the prototype will will change as you, because I assume you, you play it one time and you realize, wow, okay, this whole system over here is garbage. I need to replace that. So tell me kind of how the prototyping uh stage evolves as you get more and more into the kind of the middle of the game design
1: sure so i mean i'll i'll leave a play test with a notebook just filled with things that i want to change and i'll take those notes and i'll turn them into like action items i'm like okay here's the 15 things that i need to change on cards or here's this one system that isn't working in the game and so then i'll brainstorm like ideas for a way of replacing that system and then I'll decide, okay, well, if I make that change, here's the 10 cards that refer to that. So I need to des- redesign those two. And so the way my process will work is that, say, say, it's Monday, I sit down, I've got like my list of systems and things that I want to change. I'll figure out what mechanics those impact. I'll print out those mechanics and then cut them out, sleeve them. And a day or two later, I, I have a playable prototype that I can try again that has anywhere from five to 50% of the game completely gutted and replaced with something else.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And so it sounds like you're the kind of guy that starts with theme, you start with experience, and then you start trying to figure out, you know, adding mechanisms that kind of bring out the theme. So tell me about that. What, What would be your advice to somebody who's also a theme first designer as far as figuring out the mechanisms that go along with the theme that actually enhance the, enhance the theme and kind of bring it to life?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, that's that's tricky. Like it's it's one of those things that is almost so spontaneous that it's hard to describe. Like I, I will sit down and I will think about. I mean, using Battlestar as an example again. I'm like, all right, this is about paranoia. Um, we we want there to be an objective to the game. So our objective is we're trying to get to COBOL or we're trying to get to earth. Like our, our goal is to reach this certain place. And so what is a way to represent that in the game? And then I'll just make like a a list of like, well, here's, we could have like a track that you're moving down, or we could have like cards that you're collecting that show like where you've traveled to, or maybe their numbers. And so I'll just kind of like write down a bunch of different like ways of potentially doing this. And then, I'll think back to kind of the the core tenets of the game. And so with Paranoia being the core tenet of Battlestar Galactica, I'm like, all right, so you're trying to travel to this place. Is there any way we can introduce Paranoia into that? And so that's an example where, all right, well, what if when every time we traveled, whoever's um, in charge or in charge of the ship gets to decide where we're going to go to? So we're like, okay, well, they draw two cards and they get to choose where we're going to go. And you know what? Nobody else gets to see the other card. The other card goes on the bottom of the deck. Maybe it was better. Maybe it was worse. But it's just another way for people to be paranoid about what they haven't seen. And so there's, there's just a very brief example of like, here's something that the game needs to do. And take a bunch of ideas and find a way to make that core tenet, that core emotion of the game, um, tied into that mechanic somehow.
0: Yeah, gotcha. All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about another one of your games, one of my favorite games. Let's talk about Eldritch Horror. Tell me kind of about the design process and that one, maybe some of the obstacles you ran in into and that one had to overcome and, and figure out ways around.
1: Sure. I mean, Eldritch Horror was a game where um, we knew that we were building off of a, a very beloved game uh, being Arkham Horror, the, the second edition that Richard Lanius and Kevin Wilson made. And there are so many things that people love about that game. Even today, I mean, people still play it, and it's over a decade old, which is a long time for, for a board game. Um, and so I basically had a game that existed, and Elder Torah was kind of like making a second edition of that game with a different scope and so this was something that um that christian had had been hoping to do for a long time he's like i would love to take the game arkham horror and make it like this globe trotting game where you're just flying around the world like fighting monsters closing gates doing all the things that you'd expect from arkham and so um much like working on twilight and pyramid third edition my design um was okay let's find the things that people like about the previous edition of the game. Let's find the things that people love about Arkham Horror. And so it's like, well, these encounter cards that are broken into three parts, people love that. Um, there's the resolution system that uses skills and D6s. Like it's fine. People love that. There's, um, but then we had to take a look at, well, we're also changing things. We were changing the scope of the game. Like, can you have, a game like Elder Horror, where you're traveling the world, does it make sense for you to have dollar bills that you're exchanging to buy stuff with? And we're like, well, no. I mean, each country in the world has its own currency. So that doesn't really work. So we need to change that system. And so um, I had originally replaced it with some sort of generic currency system. I don't even remember what it was. And um, early on in the design, I had um, Nikki Valens come in and she was kind of my my co-designer on that game not kind of she was my co-designer on that game she came in and she asked a lot of those hard questions she said well why do you even need money in here like it's an extra token like we don't need to perfectly replicate what was in arkham second edition and so we brainstormed like okay well what alternate ways can you have of of gaining equipment and buying stuff you can't see my air quotes, but I'm making them air quotes, buying stuff. Um, and so we came up with the idea that, well, what if one of your stats is your basically your charisma and your, your ability to convince people to help you. Um, and so that's, that was one main system that we changed there, but the the guiding light with that particular game as we were designing it was keeping the things that people liked about Arkham Horror, but making it as, um, not as accessible as possible, but make it as easy to play as possible. We wanted it to be a game where the mechanics could disappear into the background and they just kind of become something that is easy to remember and that you know how to do. And because the mechanics become so invisible, you can focus on this story that you're having and you can focus on this character and, and what they're going through. And so it's a lot of just reducing, 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 making it as simple as possible, but reinforcing like the focus on theme, the focus on story. And so one of my favorite um, design um, mechanics for elder Tor is the, um, on the back of the character cards when a character dies or goes insane there you tip over the character on the board and somebody else can and you get a new character to replace the person that you lost but now you can go visit that character and you can visit their space to try to recover like all their items and allies and stuff and each character has a personal story um that you encounter when you go and um encounter that defeated character so for example there's um ashcan pete and he's um what he's best known for is the fact that he's got his loyal dog duke that's that's always with him that he loves and so if you were to go visit him after he's gone insane to try to recover all of his items and whatnot he's you you learn that unfortunately duke has passed away and he's hallucinating and he thinks duke is still around and so it's this very kind of sad personal story that you get about this character and you can try to influence him to to give you his equipment and stuff so that you can continue the journey for him but you also get this very kind of personal take on it that i mean at its basis element it's just like a couple of lines of text that we wrote but it makes this very simple mechanic of trying to get his items into something that's very flavorful and interesting and kind of sucks you into the world.
0: Yeah. And I think Eldritor is a great example of exactly what you're talking about as far as making the mechanisms of the game go to the background so that the theme can really be what's the most important thing and that people are experiencing. All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about IPs. You've worked on so many different intellectual properties, TV shows, video games movies all sorts of stuff lots of Star Wars games as well <laughs> and so what's it like to work on these these IPS where you have you know potentially a billion dollar multi-billion dollar corporation looking over your shoulder to make you know making sure that you're doing everything the way that they you know kind of want you to and it makes sense and that kind of thing tell me about what that's like and, and just kind of the, how the design process maybe changes when you're working on something like a Star Wars game
1: sure I mean the, the... The biggest advantage and disadvantage of working on a licensed game is that you already have a lot of things decided for you. There's a way that things work in the universe, whether it's Battlestar Galactica or Twilight Imperium. Oh, sorry. I guess Twilight Imperium has one, but we're talking about licensed things. Battlestar Galactica or, or, or Star Wars or World of Warcraft. Like There are things written in stone that are immovable objects. This. This is what the universe is like. This is what these particular factions of characters are like. Here's how um, the currency system in the world works. All these sorts of things. And like I said, it's good and bad. The good element is that all these things are decided for you. You don't need to figure out how the world works. You know how the world works. It's your job as a designer now to make how the world works come through in your game and feel very natural and work with the mechanics. Um, you're not allowed to change these things and I guess that is potentially a, an issue if you're say designing the game and you're like man you know what would really make this game sing is that if there was a way that anybody could um, use any weapon and then maybe the IP in the IP they say well actually only certain types of characters can use certain weapons and you're like okay well it looks like I can't do that um, but Personally, those issues arise so infrequently, and it might just be because I design, like, usually as a theme first guy, where I find that it's easiest to just take inspiration from it and be like, oh, okay, so in their universe, certain characters have to use certain weapons or whatever. Let's make that interesting. Let's make that kind of one of the key constraints for characters in the game. and so, I mean, working with a license that exists is personally inspiring. I mean, I've been very fortunate to work on a bunch of, like, IPs that I love, and so maybe that's why it feels that way to me. Um, and I've never really had an issue with um, working with a licensor. I mean, they, they would see the games that, our company has put out and they would say, hey, you guys know what you're doing when it comes to designing games. Prove to me that you understand the IP. And of course, we're going to have to approve it, make sure that you're you're doing things correctly. Um, but we trust that you guys are going to make a great game. And so um, a, a licensor, in my opinion, acts more like a resource for you, acts more like a person to say like, Um, someone you can lean on and say, Hey, like this, we want to do this in the world. Do you have um, a suggestion or do you see a way that we could maybe make this work in your universe? And so it's, it's very much a, a, a positive relationship. It's not a, a world where there's just somebody standing in your way and stopping you from crossing a bridge. It's no, we want to make an awesome product. You want to make an awesome product. Let's do it together.
0: Yeah. Very cool. All right. Let me ask you this. As far as, you know, working with a license and things like that, a lot of times you're on some pretty strict deadlines, you know, especially working for a company like FFG. It's big. They've got certain uh, dates they want to hit with releasing games and expansions and things like that. And so tell me about the process of having to like walk away from a game design or just get into a point where like this is not working and maybe having to scrap it, you know, maybe all of it, maybe half of it, something like that. Tell me about your process for basically knowing when, to to just drastically change a game, walk away from it, maybe try something completely different.
1: Sure, I mean that's changed a lot for me over the years, and I think that it's it's a very important thing to learn, like when to just step away from a game design because it's not working. Um, early on in my career, that was something that never really like occurred to me. I'm like, no, you can make any game fun. You just need to bang your head against it hard enough, but that's not true. I mean, I've worked on a fair number of games where I work on it for months and months and months. And I'll play it with my boss. And he's like, you know what, this just isn't working. Like, what are we going to do? I think we should just cancel this project and move on to something new. And it's as a designer, it's it was one of the hardest things for me to hear. And years later i found myself in the position where i had to be the one to give that news to other people and it was also a very challenging conversation with people but i don't know like i i i started viewing it as a very healthy thing like if you're a designer if design is in your blood then you you love doing it you love the experience of it you love the challenge of it and you probably have more ideas than you could ever turn into games. And so, more recently, my take on it is, like, I will design 10 games knowing that nine of them probably won't be any fun. In fact, 10 of them might not be any fun. I don't care. I just have this idea that, like, hey, this might be a fun idea. And I'll throw together a prototype in a couple of days. I'll play it with some friends. and will say, yeah, no, that was awful. That was really bad. Like, I wish that we had chosen to play a game that was already published instead of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's fine. That's my expectation going into it. But occasionally you'll play it and you'll be like, ooh, there's something to this. Like, sure, like, these things didn't work at all, but I feel like there's something unique here that, that maybe hasn't been seen before in a game design. So this feels like it warrants more attention. And then knowing that I'm planning to throw away 90% of the stuff I work on, it makes it a lot easier for me to be free to experiment with stuff and to be free to um, just try crazy stuff. And when I find something that's fun, like turn that into something that I'm willing to dedicate more time to and refine and, and talk more about.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like back in the day, you know, old school times when you didn't know how many kids were going to live. So you just have 12 of them, you know, and we'll see how many <laughs> turn out, you know, and maybe it's all 12, maybe it's two. But I think if you go into game design with the same kind of mentality, it's like, ah, you know, I don't have any idea how many of these are going to turn out. Maybe none of them. Uh, and yeah. just kind of set that expectation early on. It helps out a lot. That way, you know, if if it doesn't work out well, you, that, you know, it's the way it goes. But tell me about like interesting story.
1: Oh, sorry. I heard an interesting story, and I can't verify whether this is true or not, but um, I heard that in the early days of Atari, the the video game company. um, They would have this event. I don't know how frequently they would do it, but they would have the, the programmers and designers, they would throw together their games, and they would load them into a bunch of arcade cabinets, and they would have this night where they would give everybody a bucket of quarters And they would just play these prototypes. And um, at the end of the night, they would, after everybody's gone home, they would open up the machines and they would see which machines got the most quarters. (laughs) Because that was an indication to them that these were games that people, like, wanted to keep playing. And they didn't want to stop. And so those were the ones that they decided to, like... Turn into real games, or at least continue development on. And the other ones, they would just kind of like throw away. They're like, ah, people weren't interested in this one. Let's try something new.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really great way to do it. So let's kind of keep talking about this process of basically being in the middle when the game design becomes a bit of a grind, when you're coming to work and you're playing Twilight Imperium and it's going to take eight hours of your day, you know, that kind of thing. Tell me about your best advice when the game design maybe isn't as fun as the early stages when it's all brand new and fresh and got all these ideas brainstorming and flying around. Tell me, you know, basically your best idea for the grind portion as you're trying to get the game done.
1: Sure. Um, Well, personally, I've learned that I'm a very manic depressive game designer. And by that, I mean... I will sit down and I'll play the game with some people and I'll walk away from it. And I'll feel like this is the most brilliant game that anybody's ever done. I, we're <laughs> going to sell these like hotcakes. And then I'll play the exact same game two days later, maybe even with the same people. And I'll walk away from going, Oh my gosh, this game is awful. Nobody's going to buy this game. Like, it's just no. like nothing's working. Everybody was bored the whole time. Like what happened? And, um, uh, it's, it's, it could be a struggle. Like you, you're going to reach those points in any game you're working on, whether it's the, the discouraging news that you get, or whether it's just the grind, like you need to find a way to muscle through those things. You need to either just buckle down and say, you know what, things will change. And if I just work hard enough and I kind of tackle it one step at a time, it'll get better. Or like we talked about earlier, maybe it's that, well, maybe there is a problem and you just need to kind of work on a side project for like a day to just kind of clear your mind of it. And then the next day you can come back to it fresh and you won't feel like so overwhelmed by the world and overwhelmed by everything you still need to do. Um, But ultimately, the the main way that I make it through kind of that middle part and the end of a game design is just... I just make lots of lists. I make lots of lists of here's every little thing that I want to do. Partially so I don't forget, but partially also to just make sure that I'm making a little bit of progress every day and that I'm checking a little thing, a little box. I've, I've, I'm one step closer to this game actually being in the world. And I mean, it's, it's a little different when you've got a a deadline, right? And you're like, well, I need, I've got these 50 things that I need to do this week. Like, okay, there's, that happens sometimes, but for the most part, I think as long as you can break it up into small enough chunks and to just focus on like, all right, I'm going to do this one thing. And after you finish that one thing, move on to, well, what's thing number two and what's thing number three. And just the more you do it, the better you get at it
0: yeah absolutely and it's kind of that old adage doesn't matter necessarily how slowly you go as long as you don't stop and just you know keep finding ways to move one step ahead at a yeah. time But let's keep let's keep traveling down this road what does it look like for you when you're kind of past that now the game's basically done you know effectively done but now you're polishing it up you're polishing the the rules you're polishing the different aspects of it you're trying to tweaking the thing you're making it balance that kind of thing tell me your best advice for that stage of kind of the getting it ready
1: for print um, I mean there's there's a lot of important things there uh, the most important one is just attention to detail um, the last thing you want is to publish a game print however many copies of it and find there to be some drastic issue with it that you just that, that you were just staring at the game so closely that you didn't see and sometimes that involves like getting other people involved whether it's proofreaders, editors, other designers to look at your work. Um, but when you're when you're getting near the finish line, it's it's important to not kind of give in to the fatigue and to not say, Oh, I'm so tired of looking at this. Like I just can't look at it anymore. We'll we'll just it must be good enough. It's like no, you, you need to kind of grit your teeth and Print out your cards for the hundredth time, and find a quiet place to sit down and read those words as if you've read that you're reading them for the first time today. Um, When I worked at FFG, we had um, this great practice that we called Card Council, and we liked to do it with every game we worked on, whether it was a board game, a card game, minis game, whatever it was. Um, And what it would be is the designer and the producer, and they would grab some other people that were like. They probably play tested the game, but they weren't on the team. And they would bring them into a room, and they would spend however many days it took to just read through every card. They would either print them out, or we would like throw them up on the on the TV screen in the conference room, and we would all look up at that one card, would focus all our attention on. Let's read this one card together, and see if there's any issues that we haven't thought of. And we'd say, oh, yeah, no, that card looks good. And then we will move on to the second card, and then the third card, and then the fourth card. And that was kind of our last, like, sanity check of not only, like, the mechanics of the game, but also, like, the wording that we're using on everything. And it was, it was just a way to kind of put that last layer of polish on it to, to make it feel that much more professional,
0: yeah, that's a really, really good system. And I, I, I totally agree. If you have a friend, especially that is, you know, really good attention to detail, because I've noticed a lot of designers I talk to, they're visionaries more than they are like nitty gritty detail oriented people. And so if you can surround yourself with, with folks that really notice little grammar mistakes, little errors in different things, it's really, really helpful if you can bring them on to kind of go through that last stage and making sure it all looks good before you print several thousand of them and it's hard to undo that, especially if it's a problem in the rule book or, you know, especially if it's something for how the game plays. Uh-huh. Now, let me ask, let me ask you this, you know, before we, we got uh, recording, you mentioned that you've now moved over, you're doing something different. You're not working at Fancy Flight anymore. Now you're working for Day, kind of as, a, as your own, basically a design studio. And it's going to be a very, very different structure, different setup. So tell me a little bit more about that and tell me maybe some of the challenges you're running into now, you know, going from having a big team and now you're kind of going more, you know, solo designs and things like that. Tell me about what's going on.
1: Sure. So um, uh, Fantasy Flight is, is an Asmodee game studio. And so um, I had been talking with them for a while about trying to do some, more different types of games, um, some more experimental type stuff. And um, we eventually came up with the idea of me spinning off into my own studio. And so I still kind of work for the same um, bosses and I work with a lot of the same people in sales and production that that I used to. Um, but I went from being one person in a, I don't know, 60 to 80 person studio to a, um, basically a, a one-man studio where I freelance out my graphic design and my art. And I, almost, it was almost a return to um, where I'd started at FFG, where I kind of had to wear a lot of different hats. Um, and so I took all that experience that I had from doing that stuff, and now I'm using it to, um, to run my, my small little studio. Uh, it's called Unexpected Games, and um, my goal is to do games that can kind of stand out in a very crowded industry. Um, and so um, it's changed a lot of kind of what I approach in my, my day-to-day um, design and, and just what my workflow is like. Um, and so, like I mentioned, when I was at FFG, I would spend about half my time designing my games. I would spend half my time kind of um, uh, overseeing the other game designs that were going on in various capacities. And so now I'm spending my time focused on whatever project I'm working on right now. Like, okay, here's my, my goal at the start of this was right, I'm going to spend four days a week focusing on the product that I need to get done the product that has a deadline for um, that I can see months in advance. I'm going to chip away at that. And I'm going to spend one day a week designing something new and what that is, I don't care. Um, And so basically what I've been doing is as I kind of come up with ideas or I've got documents and documents of different ideas that I've had over the years, that I've just never had an opportunity to pursue. And um, when that day a week would come up, I would set aside what I'm working on I would say, all right, let's pick from this list, whatever looks the most inspiring to me today. And let's, let's make a prototype or let's make part of a prototype and find, find time to play it. Um, And so that's, that's kind of been my goal for the last uh, eight months or so. And my schedule has changed a little bit. It hasn't been the perfectly four days a week working on that thing one day a week um, doing New game designs. Sometimes it's two days doing new game designs. It it really has varied depending upon um, how much time I need to dedicate to my current project. But as a designer, it's been very different because if you don't set aside that time to like try to do something new and try to like build something from scratch, then you're just going to become overwhelmed with all the stuff you have to do you're just going to be like stuck with the here's the here's the deadline i have looming here's the here's the i mean if you're if you're designing for fun just um you probably have your day job that you need to worry about and so it's it's kind of a very similar thing where if you can find if you can dedicate yourself to um making yourself create something new then you can um you can make sure that you do it, that you, that you get a new idea, you get a new prototype every week or every month or however often you want to do it. Um, And so my, my goal in all of this is that most of these will fail. Most of them will be terrible. But um, since I'm kind of running the studio now, I need to be looking forward. I need to like be researching what the next big thing my studio could be doing is and so um that that has been one way to do that but also since i don't have a, a whole um bunch of game designers and developers and producers surrounding me i also have to think very differently about scope um i i i can't necessarily plan to do like i want to do a 150 fifty dollar game like twilight imperium like if I wanted to, I could do that, but it's probably going to take me three times as long as, as another project. And so it's, it's given me the freedom to explore different types of games that um, I haven't gotten to do in the past. And that's been exciting and it's been fun and, and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing more of it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And you bring, bring up a great point and something I've definitely found in my own experience is there's never a shortage of things that I have to do. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't schedule, you know, these other things that I want to do, it's never going to happen because my, my life will get filled up with, with whether it's day job stuff, family stuff, just life stuff. And so scheduling has become my best friend. It's like, all right, you know, Tuesday night, this is what I'm doing from this time to this time. I'm going to schedule and scheduling out. Okay. I'm going to work on some new ideas. I'm going to, you know, I've been jotting down little notes here and there. And on Tuesday night from six to 8 PM, I'm going to work on these things. And once what I figured out is what gets scheduled gets done. And so I think that's really good advice, but you know, Tell me a little bit more about what you're excited about. You know, as, as you're looking to the future, unexpected games. I'm pumped. I can't wait to see what you come up with. Tell me just in general what you're really excited about. Maybe some some uh, ways you think the the market can go, the industry can move. You don't have to get too needy, you know, into the details or the weeds about it, but just kind of overall, what are you most excited about?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, like I mentioned, it's there's thousands of games that come out every single year. And so if you don't make a conscious effort to do something different, something that's never been seen before, then you might just get lost in the noise. And so, I mean, I have designed over a dozen different games and I've t- touched on a lot of different genres and a lot of different types of games. And so for me, it's it's been very much about like, making games that are different from what I've gotten to do in the past. And that, I don't know, this might sound a little hokey, but I, I sometimes think of it as an art, right? And I'm an artist and an artist doesn't want to like paint the same painting that they've painted a dozen times before. They want to try something new and they want to grow as an individual and they want to, Prove that they are more than what has already been seen out of them. And so uh, that's what makes me the most excited is just that, like, there are some really cool things out there that that we can do as designers that haven't been seen before. Like, the perfect game does not exist. Like, because everybody's definition of that is different. And there are so many different genres of games. And there are even more... Genres that haven't been invented yet—they're just waiting for you to invent—and so get out there and and do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we close this thing out, give me your best advice to game designers in general. You know, you've been doing this a long time, uh, especially compared to most people that listen to this show, who are either just getting started or only been doing it for a few years or so. So, give me your best advice, just to game designers out there listening. What would you tell
1: them? So, the most important thing. As a game designer, like if you're if you're looking to either join a company that publishes games, or you want to do it um, by yourself on Kickstarter or something, most important thing is just make games. Like make them, make lots of games, try lots of different stuff, and just become better at it. Like the first thing that you work on is not going to be perfect the first thing that you work on is not going to be the next gloom Haven or the next twilight Imperium or the next, whatever, like maybe you'll come up with a brilliant idea, but just keep trying, just keep at it. And whenever people would apply for a game design job at fantasy flight games, I always tell them that they're like, how do I, how do I land this job? How do I get into the industry? How do I do it? And I say, you don't need my permission. Like you can, you can be designing games right now. And if you keep doing that and you're that passionate about it, like you can turn it into a job and you can prove to yourself, maybe it starts out as just you playing games with your friends like it did for me. And eventually like you're able to maybe sell some games to a publisher, but just start small and just do the work and keep trying and don't give up. Awesome.
0: Corey, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with unexpected games and all the, the cool stuff that you're getting to work on and everything else you got going on right now.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening.
0: Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing.